0: Howard Linsen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or Stock Twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Canute. Howard, how are you? Coke Zero. Coke Zero. Have no one seen. likes Coke like you and Hans, but. That's delicious. Thank you. I used to drink Coke. The only bubbles I drink now is soda water and champagne. This is like a, these tiny little bottles of Diet Coke Zero, like- and I take all day to drink one, and it just gives me that little instead of candy. Though I do still eat candy, so it's really not helping. Are you still a Jolly Rancher, or what? I just like the feeling of being feeling bloated and 70 years old. The, I love Jolly Ranchers, but you know, sweet tarts is still my poison. <laughs> those halloween sweet tarts those little packs like just little crunchy ones seven or 18 packs of those and uh a day you know i'd yeah. probably probably be better off smoking <laughs> that might be better for you speaking of smoking i have no segue for that because i don't know i don't know speaking of smoking <laughs> I'm a little bit uh, off today it is um gorgeous day absolutely fantastic unbelievable fall day in phoenix same as summer day anywhere else gary's in town so we got lp meetings we're uh, catching up uh, as a group. All right. And today I got a public company CEO. He Excellent market cap. He's been he's been difficult, hasn't he? No, he's not been difficult. Not at all. So, I think he's been very busy. Well, you, there was an email going around. This has been very difficult. So you were talking about me. <laughs> yeah, of course it was. <laughs> you. There was like, a, there was the thread was this. You didn't difficult. read it? No, I didn't read it. Maybe that's why, because I'm difficult. There was like a the heading in all caps. This it was, has been difficult. It was Rishi and I talking about how we should just say no to you. Yeah, Rishi. Rishi sometimes the bubbles are forming in my text before I've texted him. <laughs> and no comes back like as a, as a, as a regular thing. Right. So uh, we have uh, a really good friend. He introduced me to Jan van and a lot of LPs and friends of mine. He is a, uh, he really is an interesting cat. And right now he has so much vision around software and I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and public companies. And he started a company called Gold Bullion, which is really cool. I think he hmm. was at Goldman Sachs, but I can't remember. Anyways, he ran off to be CEO of Par Technologies, and it is a uh, software, harb- hardware, and support services for hospitality industry. So, uh, and the stock has had just a phenomenal run. And, you know, the market cap's still only uh, 800 million. So we're going to talk about all things public companies, market, fintech. He really is a sophisticated cat. And uh, I'm happy to know him, but it's been a while because of the kids' COVID his uh, public company responsibilities, and the fact that he probably doesn't like me. So uh, welcome. Uh, let's get uh, Subneet on the phone. Subneet. Hey, Howard. What's up? Where are you today? I am
1: in uh, rainy upstate New York, uh, in the center of the state in a town called Utica, New York.
0: Is that, is that his first curse word? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Where's the headquarters for Power Technologies?
1: It's up here. So oh. uh, it's, it's literally smack. It's about an hour from Syracuse. So it's sort of smack center in the state.
0: Syracuse. You were born in that. Era. Where were you born?
1: You have a great memory. I was uh, I was I was born in the Bronx, but I was primarily raised in upstate New York near yeah. Albany, mm-hmm. which is about probably an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes from where I am today.
0: I can't. I mean, you have really done something since we last talked. I mean, probably your life came together a little bit when you stopped talking to me. so i feel a a little bit responsible for your success like the chart's gone straight up so we know each other through van how do we know each other through raul paul i think sunny Uh,
1: no raul i brought in the fold later it was actually through sunny Through sunny Singh. yes
0: unbelievable he's had a good little run himself the old sunny meister
1: oh good good
0: yeah he's still a bit pay sunny is so funny He's always looking for the next perfect thing, Sonny. He's like, like well, Seinfeld. He's like he's the seek like Seinfeld. The, he's the Seek Seinfeld.
1: He's feld. written out the cold, uh, the cold winter of crypto, and now he's on the other end of it, right? So yes, it's got to be nice.
0: He is on the other end of it, so I want to talk a little bit about that. So tell everybody today uh, a little bit of background and part technology, and I want to work my way backwards and then work our way forward. So uh, tell people about you and the company.
1: Sure. So wh- why don't I tell you about the company, and then I can kind of use that narrative and to weave my own story in. Because um, the PAR story is probably far more interesting. It so is? PAR it's was so founded. Cool. It, it's a, it's a really interesting American entrepreneurial story. PAR was founded uh, 52 years ago in a town called Rome, New York, and it was originally uh, built to, as an IT services company to the DoD. Uh, PAR stands for Pattern Analysis Recognition, huh. and it was basically a team of data scientists analyzing data for the U.S. government. I call it Palantir before Palantir. Uh-huh. They were you know 50 years early, uh, too early maybe, and. So for the first 10 years of the company's journey from 1968 to 1978, they provided these services, nice, profitable, you know, local business. But in 1978, the founders actually invented the first sort of modern point of sale terminal. The point of sale terminal is kind of what replaced the cash register at a restaurant or retail store. And it actually happened because one of their mothers was a McDonald's franchisee. And she kept complaining to her son that there wasn't a better system for at a McDonald's restaurant. She would have a cash register. Her cashier would sort of say, hey, Howard, your burger and shake is 95 cents. And then write that on the back of a bag, hand the back of the bag to the back. And then in the end, you'd sort of get your bag with your stuff in it. And she, what she suspected essentially was that people couldn't do math. And she said, basically said, these kids at the counter, if it's 95 cents, sometimes they say 93. And if you're a regular customer, you're not going to say, hey, you undercharge me. But if I overcharge you, you're going to tell me every single time. And so her, she went to her son and said, hey, let's, let's build a better system. And her son said, mom, you're crazy. This makes no sense. And so what she did to convince her son is she actually stayed in the restaurant for, I think, maybe two, three, four days, maybe a week and stood at the counter. And every time you placed your order, when your order would come out, she would take your bag and replace it with a new bag. And then she took all the bags, did the math on every bag and said, okay, this says we should have sold this many fries, this many hamburgers compared it to the inventory that was sold. and went back to her kid and said, see... We only collected, whatever, $1,000. We should have collected 1200 bucks. Here's how much we lose every day, every week, every year. And so that motivated her son to go to Radio Shack, buy some circuits, and they built this little point of sale terminal. And as luck would have it, they were located in a bit of like a, of a vacation town called, the, you know, the Hamptons of upstate New York. And uh, a bunch of McDonald's franchisees happened to be driving through. They saw it and they said, I want one, I want one. And it just started to grow like wildfire. And so literally just a couple of years after inventing this thing, McDonald's approved it to be sold across McDonald's. And then, and that was in 1980. And then two years after that, in 1982, the company went public off the success of that McDonald's business. And so you can imagine this little tiny company in upstate New York in four years, went from this IT services company to a public company on the New York Stock Exchange. And, and for the subsequent 15 years, it was a massive success. You know, every restaurant ran to adopt the technology And then for the 15 years after that, the company really struggled. And it struggled because it kind of got swimlaned as a hardware company and a services company, not a software business. And unfortunately the software companies at the time, Oracle and the likes, came in and said, don't, don't buy, don't make your choice of who you buy your point of sale from because of hardware, buy because of software. And so the software companies sort of became the Kings of the industry and part kind of got uh, left behind. Um, Many years later in, in 2014, PAR, to rectify that challenge, PAR went out and bought a small SaaS business in San Diego actually called Brink, B-R-I-N-K. And um, pretty much right after that acquisition, Brink exploded. It went from being in, you know, just a few hundred stores to over 10,000, five and a half years later. And so when I got involved with PAR, it was in the middle of this sort of transition from this hardware and services company to this software business. I joined the board of the company in April of 2018. um, And, you know, I think when I got on the board, there was ideas, let's, you know, Let's add somebody with a little bit of youth. Let's add somebody that has some experience in software and, and get a perspective of sort of where, where things might be going. And, you know, pretty much right when I got involved, you know, all, all hell broke loose. I mean, the company was, was in a really challenged position. It was running out of money. It was under investigation by the DOJ, the SEC. There was an activist shareholder fight starting. And so, you know, eight months after I joined the board, I, I found myself coming in uh, on an interim basis to see if we could kind of clean things up. Because what I had become convicted about was that that small little software business had an incredible amount of value and it was being disguised by all these distractions. Um, and so I, you know, I sort of originally came in just on an interim basis. I wasn't planning on staying and, and it was sort of at the time, you know, who drew the, the short straw um and we just got really lucky uh you know we came in we did a massive restructuring 20 percent of the workforce we were able to go make peace with the sec the doj to some degree we went out um sort of changed the management team changed compensation uh, It's really and most importantly started really change the culture of the place and so we were able to go to wall street fix our balance sheet issues and so you know three or four months after taking the helm uh you know i decided to stay on and see if we could really you know build this into you know the and our, our, our dream is in you know, 10 years to be the largest hospitality software company in the world. And so yeah, I would say it was not by intelligent design. I never, ever intended to, to run a restaurant software company or, or, or stay, but uh, you know, things sort of lined up and then and, and, and I ended up here.
0: And how many people is it today again?
1: We're about a thousand people.
0: And where, is, where are most people?
1: Uh, we are split between uh, New York, upstate New York in San Diego with offices in Tampa and uh, outside of Toronto as well.
0: Oh, Wow. And what's amazing is like the stock, is it considered a 700 million, a small cap stock? I do not know. Oh, okay. And in March, COVID, so like in the hospitality industry was a disaster. So talk, talk me through COVID.
1: Yeah. You know, it was, a, there's an interesting story here too. So when, when I, when we got to the company, the company had an incredibly stretched balance sheet, you know, we had, you know, maybe 10 million of cash on the balance sheet. we were burning two or three a month and we all, and we had $20 million of debt. And so in, in April of 2019, we did a financing round. Um, we did a convert great terms. And so, uh, going into 2020, you know, we felt we were in a great spot and, um, but we had done a couple MA deals. We had brought in a lot of talent and so in February, uh, and I'm going to get, get to your question, but it's an interesting story. We were sort of at this point where we said, hey, the stock's gone up a lot since the convert. We could probably refinance it and put some more money on the balance sheet, which would allow us to sort of continue to hire aggressively and do some M&A. And our, our sort of bankers gave us this option. They said, hey, you can raise the money now in sort of the end of February, or you can wait until April. And you know, everyone around the table is like, you know, let's let's wait for April. It's just safer. These, these offerings are just, it's, it's why I missed our first date for the podcast. They're just really intensive, extreme processes and, um, and at the time, I don't know if you remember in February, uh, that the polls were showing that, you know, Bernie was sort of soaring to the, to the head of the democratic, uh, potential, potentially dom- nomination. And I'd always sort of, you know, I was lucky in my prior life to sort of have some exposure to sort of great macro thinkers. And, and I always remember that like this, the slightest thing can trigger a massive sale and, and, and really create risk uh, across an economy and across a macro environment. And so I said, Hey, let's do the fundraise in February. <laughs> And, you know, looking back, it was the luckiest thing in the world. I'm so grateful for Bernie Sanders for that simple point, which is if we had not sort of seen that, we would have made it to April and been in an incredibly challenged situation. So what happened? Um, In the middle of March, when the country shut down, we went from sort of growing, you know, 40, 50% a year to everything shutting down. I mean, literally every customer called us and said, we're not paying our bills. Uh, Every single shipment stopped. Our products from China got locked in China. Um, And, you know, we literally sat there and said, you know, "What, what do we do? And so, I think what we did at PAR sort of had this sort of conviction that, hey, this will pass and we'll get through it. And so we, we sort of took that conviction and said, OK, let's cut where we can cut. We'll cut things like marketing. We'll cut things like some aspects of sales. But let's continue to invest in R&D because at the end of this, we'll be OK. And so um, thankfully, you know, and really in really an amazing way, Howard, the restaurants in America shut down literally for six weeks, six weeks, two months. But when they came back, they came back roaring. And so, you know, by the end of the second quarter, you know, it really felt like business was back to normal. Um, and so we went from cutting people, you know, massive, you know, save, save, save to all of a sudden grow, grow, grow. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen. Um, it was it was wild to see how fast it turned.
0: And running a public company like why I mean, you know, I know that you had always talked about, you know, the Buffett model and rolling up software. And obviously we did Gold Bullion before. I want to talk about that. And we're Bitcoin. I got so many questions. So it's been a little while around and you were so into fintech and you started co-venture. So what do you think of the most interesting thing to talk about that you're been thinking about outside of power? Like, I mean, we'll cover power, but I mean, what what are some of the things that are like, have you, or you just have no time to think about all the fun stuff you used to think of? You want to talk about co venture, gold, Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, I would say that I, I,
1: I think of the fun stuff. you can't take, you know, taking action or, or getting involved, and so it's it's given me some more time to have perspective. I think, um, you know, I, you know, running a public company has been probably an interesting conversation and it's just a nif- new experience for me. It's not something I had any exposure to, and honestly, ever expected to be doing. Um, but you know, the things that kind of interest me in the world are are, are actually th- the same things we used to talk about back in the day. I think this this idea of sort of software. Uh, in the world, you know, is, is just accelerating. Obviously COVID accelerated, but um, I think it's accelerating in ways that we didn't expect. Uh, and so I'm super fascinated by that. You know, I've always been fascinated by the idea of, um, I call it new asset classes, but it's really that fractionalization that's happening where, you know, my first foray into this was was gold and maybe baseball cards, but, you know, look at what's happening in, you know, your investments, Rally Road, this idea that everything is an asset and everything can be traded and and these walls of, act, these walls of limit sort of the, these guarded walls of Wall Street to give access to these things are changing. And, and so I've been, so, you know, so interested in seeing, you know, exchanges to trade your baseball cards, your art, jewelry, things like that. I think we're going to continue to see that. And so that's, and I think crypto has an interesting underlying underneath that can be really interesting because I think the next set of collectibles will be, you know, uniquely identifiable digital assets, right? That painting your daughter makes, how do you make that actually unique and tokenize it? And so there's, that's like a whole world I think is going to be really fun to see. And then on the fintech side, you know, the thing that I I continue to be, you know, excited by is just the, the, the reinvention of payments. I think it's it's, it's hard to, to express just how fast that wave is moving. And, and obviously COVID and e-commerce has pulled so much of that forward, but you know, I sort of envision that every restaurant, every retail store, everything we go to will be Amazon Go. You know, you never pull out your wallet, you never pull out your phone anymore when you're in the store and and, and, and for a library or a school, it's sort of that, that seamless, you know, we have a standing apart sort of food, people, nothing in between. And I think that's probably a great motto for just the way that te- technology is becoming ambient. And payments to me is just the beginning of that, that phase of ambient computing.
0: And do you think you're, I mean, in March, the market cap must have been $150 million or right? Like, <laughs>
1: it was very low. I don't remember, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a mess. It, okay. it, yeah, I mean, listen, it, it was one of those things where I said, oh my God, you know, are we going to run out of money? Uh, it was one of those things where, is everyone going to leave because we had all these employees, myself, everybody came in and, and sort of had to steer prices that were higher relative to their, their company. And then, you know, it's it, it's an interesting thing to talk to the CEOs of these gigantic and CIOs of these gigantic restaurant companies uh-huh. who are super successful, calling you saying, can you waive my bill for the month? Wow. Um, it was a very, you know, humbling experience. It, it was. And, and, you know, the hard decision, you know, it was also, you know, do we cut, right? Do we, the average, this is sort of a crazy statistic, our average competitor, the people that we sort of mark ourselves against, cut literally 50% of their staff, five zero.
0: And would you say and, Square is a competitor? So square is just walk me through the restaurant competitors. So I have some context. Cause yeah,
1: sure. So, so so you'll know something. So it's a down market, sort of smaller restaurant organizations is probably where the biggest TAM is. And that's where you have square toast. Um, you probably seen upserve all those cool, you know, terminals you see when you go into a hipster restaurant, mm um, that they're all down there. And and toast is probably the the biggest, and most significant square of the two, probably the two big ones down there. Up market where we play, where we service like large restaurant organizations, Um, it's primarily the older software companies, actually it's Oracle, it's NCR, a bunch of legacy point of sale Mm -hmm. companies that you you never know. And so we've, the reason why I think our story is interesting is because we're selling to like the, the big stable restaurant, right? Like give me an example, Arby's five guys. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, right away, all
0: I can think, I I have to go to the bathroom. You said Arby's. I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) That should be their logo. (laughs) Just be,
1: uh, I'll give you. That. Give you or, but we also, toilet. you know, I think really interesting, uh, you know, brands like sweet green and Mod Pizza. And, oh my God, and, Mod and Pizza so-
0: and sweet Sweetgreen. greens. Well, I mean, obviously, COVID hurt them. So you're saying CEOs of those companies would call you and just say, "Hey, by the way, can we can we shine you for a month?"
1: And, and maybe that was specific, but I would say almost every customer at some point called us and said, I can't, we can't pay this month. We don't know what we're going to do. We're cutting 30, 40. I mean, our, I would have conversations and say, listen, I can't pay. I'm about to fire 40% of the people that have been with me since I thought of this company. Um, and so we were, I mean, it was wild. I mean, it just and, and what I think was amazing to me is just there is a collective, like when there's collective pain, humanity responds in force. And so I had employees, I we had to do our own layoffs. And I remember employees saying, hey, can you cut my salary so we don't need to cut the next guy or girl on the line? Um, you know, you had our, our employees come in and say, hey, I know I just got fired. Can I stay on for a week so I could help that customer get through that? And it was just an inspirational moment for me to see just people care, you know, when 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 it is a collective pain, like you can, you know, in, in some ways that leadership, <laughs> the leadership we maybe lack at the top uh, could have used that collective pain for something good.
0: And so... You charge how? how? How so? So if you're in the middle of the stack, do you move up or down, or you can't? You're stuck, and stuck is good. So think
1: of us as like the ERP. So when you're in a restaurant, that point of sale system, that software that you know that that, that takes your order in, sends it to the kitchen, or takes the order from Uber Eats or DoorDash uh-huh. or online and processes that transaction. We're like the ERP system, hmm. and so we are a relatively sticky product because we run the restaurant. And, if, and, and if is we it all APIs? Restaurant- you
0: have to work with DoorDash and. You know, I wish,
1: you know, it's, it's one of the things that excites me about this market is that, you know, relative to all the stuff you and I used to talk about and look at, you know, you don't have quite that intensity here yet. And okay. so we're really early in that way. But this, but the short answer is you are spot on. The reason our product wins is because it's completely open. Mm-hmm. We've got over 150 companies integrated to our API. And so, so you you're have to powers,
0: constantly be doing that. That is the job yes. of the engineering team is just work that in
1: it is and but the core part is like can we take a transaction from all these places processes end of the kitchen timing drive-through and there's so much technology i mean you know you've got drive-through com- companies that, that are using artificial intelligence bots for the drive-through you've got customers you know trying to have geofence so when howard walks into the store it's like here's a coupon howard um and so all of that ends up having to run through the point of sale system and so every restaurant in the world today is is upgrading technology and it really i mean we, we, we should probably do this together but if you were to graph the stock price of the restaurants the highest percentage of their spend to R&D I'm almost certain they will be the restaurants that have outperformed because it'll be Chipotle, it'll be McDonald's, you know, the Chick Fil A's of the world, Panera. The company that, companies that companies have doubled down in technology have really won because you know they have great loyalty, and so you're going to use your loyalty out more. You know, if you make it easy, customers seem to choose it, or if you make it accessible. You yeah, more. Jeff
0: Richard was telling me. I mean, he made a good point because a venture capitalist at GGV and they're in Slice, and he was saying, and I got to connect you guys, but he was saying that, and I he, I agree with him. Any new restaurants going to get built with this in mind first. So, really, it's yep. like a total reboot is going to happen. So, you are in a good I spot. Maybe that that's why your stock's just it, been going up naturally.
1: I, I think it is. And I feel, listen, if you're a restaurant today and your, your online presence is as important as your physical location, right? I mean, it has to you know, you it start to be, with that. Exactly. And I think we're not, people aren't quite realizing that yet. But this, these ghost kitchens, you know, these virtual kitchens, these things are all like the cat's out of the bag, right? Like, I think COVID has said, hey, like Uber Eats and DoorDash, like, I, I kind of like getting delivery or I kind of like ordering and not having to wait in line. Like th- these things that you know, they don't come back in the bag. And I think I oftentimes show our, our customers and our, our employees saying, "Hey, like, look at the graph of e-commerce adoption in the United States. That will be off-premise dining for food. People are going to come back to restaurants for sure. But there is certainly a large population that now expects to have every restaurant to have delivery or online pickup or QR code. Like that. Once once you've tasted that technology, you don't go back. And so our big bet is that that's going to continue for the next
0: 10, 20 years. Well, I don't think that's a big bet. I think you fucking. I mean, damn me. Thanks for calling me in March saying, Howard, listen, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, while you're buying uh, Zillow, you might have to take a look at our stock. So my next question is it's not going to be Oracle or NCR coming down and you can't speculate. So just, just hear me out. Uh, would you say it's obviously more likely there could be a bidding war from the bottoms up versus the tops down. If someone wants to move into your space and just gobble you up, is it more likely to come from uh, a square or a Grubhub or, uh, or a DoorDash? More likely. You know, I, mean. I,
1: I don't know. What, what I would say is that consolidation is, is no doubt going to happen because if you think about, like imagine you had a chain of restaurants, um, like you don't have an IT department, right? You, you had, you know, an IT guy or gal who was in charge of like keeping the Wi-Fi network up, you know, maybe, you know, dealing with your point of sale company. But all of a sudden you're like, wait, I got to manage an integration into DoorDash and Uber Eats. And then I have to have an online ordering site. I got to have an app. I got to have a loyalty app. I got to have an artificial intelligence, you know, computer in the back manning like my, you know, robot fryers. And I got to have an AI tool in the drive. You become like a technology company, right? And, And that is overwhelming for restaurants today. And so I think you'll see massive consolidation within like the products of a restaurant. The average restaurant we work with has something like a dozen different products they're using, sometimes much more. I think you'll see like that verticalization as opposed to square gobbling us or us gobbling square. Um, I think that you'll probably have more verticalization first. Of saying, "Hey, instead of just being your quote unquote point of sale company, what if I was your online ordering company? What if I was your drive through company, and so on and so forth?" And so we've been we've done a couple acquisitions on that thesis, which is saying oh. we can provide more to the customer. They seem to want it. So we bought a drive through company and we bought a back office software company. Um, and, and just like all enterprise software, right? You know, people always screw this up. How is like. You know, when you and know, I used to talk about software back in the day, I used to say, the thing that everyone screws up is that they look at old software companies and say, okay, you know, a dollar of license maintenance revenue is worth two in the cloud, right? It's like, oh, well, when you turn it to SaaS, you build more over time. And I think what I've learned over time is that that $2 is actually $10. Because the moment that you make, put a product in the cloud, like the innovation that comes off of that is enormous because all of a sudden you're like, wait it's open and so I can plug in like a cool loyalty thing or I can take Bitcoin for payment or I can have an online website or mobile app, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the, the innovation explodes. It's like if Apple ever opened up iMessage, imagine how much innovation would have
0: kind kind are for themselves, I mean, like with the cash. For themselves though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, 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 I've I been trying to, I'll flush this out on you because it's it's a fresh howism. I said we went from a pencil accounting world to an Excel accounting world to a whatever, like the cloud meaning a post- spreadsheet world. And, but what you're saying about the cloud is how do you fucking, what's the point of having a spreadsheet? It's just infinite at many levels, right? It's about what your imagination is and what your software can do because everybody, I mean, Park could go international next year and never had planned on it a year ago. So how do you, how do you do forecasting other than, Leave me alone with your spreadsheets. Like, we'll do the spreadsheet, but listen, you know, what do they mean in a in a cloud-based post-spreadsheet world in many ways where smart sheets and Airtable and everything's so connected and everything's just out there in the cloud?
1: Yeah, I think you kind of figure out where you're going to go by listening to your customers a little bit here. You know, I think in consumer software, you know, Steve Jobs sort of fashions the idea that, you know, it, you know, customers don't, you know, Henry, you know, the Henry Ford one, right? If customers told me they wanted, they want faster horses. Um, you know, in the enterprise world, is a little bit different, right? You gotta <laughs> really, listen to what
0: the line show. Yeah, sorry, that's a great line.
1: Um, it's amazing. No, but but in the enterprise world, you're it's good that's gonna happen in the enterprise world too, but you've got to listen more, right? Because you're solving like a discrete problem today. Um and, and I think a lot of what we're doing is sort of listening. Where where are the big problems that our customers have today? How can we solve that and sort of build a product roadmap aligned to that? And obviously we push the envelope, right? We sort of say, hey, I know you want this. We're going to build this instead because we think this is better for you in the end. And you have those healthy conversations. But for us, it's sort of playing that roadmap. Now, where we are probably different is that... um you know, I think we are really opportunistic. You know, when, um, and when we did our first acquisitions, I think, you know, I was four or five months into being the full-time CEO. We, you know, we, we pulled the trigger and I think we're, we're, we're more aggressive than, than most. And so, yeah, there's no doubt our future will not be linear. There's no doubt it's going to be straight up or straight down. There's going to be, gonna be some, some bets because I think w- one of the unique things about what we're doing and, and is that we're, we're, we're trying to be like create a culture of extreme intensity and results. And so um, we have three values across the company which are, you know, speed, you know, and the saying I like to use, we're the kind of people that don't wait for the elevator. Um, so if you got a great idea, you don't wait in the elevator, go to your computer, you sprint up the stairs. Uh, we're the kind of people that obsessively about accountability and ownership. And we're the kind of people that look at the scoreboard, like impact, we call it. And, and we're not the kind of people, if you want to sit in a whiteboard and like brainstorm for 10 days, yeah, that's great. That's not what we're we're gonna out execute everybody, and so we're building this SWAT team of young, aggressive, ambitious people, and we're throw we throw them in the water, young. And so, just as an example, I mentioned we bought like a, our first acquisition was a drive-through company, eighteen or twenty million dollars revenue. We threw a twenty-eight year old to go run it. We said, sink or swim, make this thing happen. If it works, you stay employed and you get paid well. If it doesn't, see you later. And we've created this culture that I think we think we we can apply to other things beyond just what we do today. And so, it's how do we get super aggressive young talent? To, to make the trek up to upstate New York, train them super well, give them and imbue them like the right sort of principles and thinking, and then throw them into tough problems. And it's it's been I mean, an interesting process to see unfold.
0: And is it? Oh man, I got a million questions. I'm sorry. I'm sure you have other stuff to say, but I'm so in the rabbit hole now. On par, I bought a few shares on on Robinhood just so I can follow it the last couple months, but. Um, the, uh, so good job. I mean, I, I had a board proxy and I voted you in still. So just, just uh, no. Just, just, <laughs> Thank I you. wrote Ali Hamed in for uh, vice chair. The um, <laughs> So, I mean, dude, congrats. I mean, it's pretty cool. Like, so the other thing I got to ask you is, is this a head, a under billion dollars. So SPACs, you got SPACs going out there at five, six billion. Is it? How do you stay focused knowing that like under a billion, no one really cares who you are. So it's like you have all this illiquidity in under billion dollar companies, sure. but you got recognized. So what is it that, that you think, cause you can be a great company and just be ignored in, in this day and age. Cause there's yeah, so much you know, capital I think out there.
1: This was the hardest thing for me. So transitioning from like the private world to the public world, mm-hmm. I think, you know, me, I've got a great network. I've had some good things, but I'm like a quiet guy. Like I'm a behind, I like to have a dinner with you and like, jump up the walls, but you know, I'm not like, I barely tweet and and I'm not good at that promotional side. Right. I, I actually like run from that. right? And, and I think it's like the biggest challenge sometimes I have with our own shareholders is why don't you promote why don't you push it out there? And so I think what I've learned is that it's a combination. You've got to deliver results. You've got to deliver change. Um, and you do have to get the message out there when you're a smaller company, because it, it is hard to get discovered. We had one really lucky thing that was different for us, which is, um, par was owned by a few small, really successful emerging hedge funds who really got the word out there. And so it was one of these things where they'd been out there saying, Hey, there's this great company. No one knows about it. It's middle of nowhere upstate New York. It's got the software business. And then all of a sudden I came in there and I sort of looked more looked the part, if you will. Um, And then we started to deliver results and it kind of compounded and compounded and it just, it sort of became a thing. Um, But we were lucky in that we kind of had amazingly supportive shareholders who really got out there. And then, you know, and then I think we make an effort to be transparent. I, you know, I wrote a shareholder letter um, and, and I debated a lot, but the, but you know, one of the, the big cultural changes of PAR is I, I would say, Hey, Howard, you, you just bought some shares apart. You pay a portion of my salary. And so we've kind of reoriented the company or oriented the company to sort of teach our team members, which is shareholders are a partner in this journey. And so we've got to be transparent and honest with them too. And so I, I think that's kind of come through the culture, which also helps us be better for shareholders. Cause I would tell you before, when I got here, like the idea that you, you treat shareholders with care, just, it didn't exist. Um, I remember when I got here, I felt the last, uh, earnings call, the company took no Q and A. Just said, "Here's our results. Thank you very much." Um, and so we worked kind of hard to, to get that, but it's definitely the hardest thing for me. It's not—it's not, it's not my nature to you know jump up and down on CNBC.
0: And so results. I mean, you're a good story for a reminder <gasps> that you can be a small public company. I think. I mean, you know, now it's all about like get your moth, uh, get uh, the banks, give you, do a SPAC around a sexy tech company. But there, uh, you're a champion in many ways, not because you're, you're not promotional. I had like really call you and just, you weren't looking at me. I was calling you just to catch up. And that's a good sign that if you're tooling up a software company under the radar, you can still be public. I mean, Let me take
1: you a step forward. So, you, you know, I, I think you're spot on. You knew, you were like so early on this, right? Which is the dearth of, of, of growth uh, tech companies is, is not good for the markets overall. Right. It's, it's not terrible. Good for
0: companies. Yeah, we need choices.
1: And, and I think what I've learned here is that the public markets can be incredibly useful and better than the, like in our situation where we had a really fast growing software business that was, you know, a little bit mismanaged and misdirected. That would have been, we would have gotten a down round in, in the private markets with a massive pref, you know, a 2X conversion, you know, I mean, liquidation. Like it would have been a tough, Right. Like all the talent would have fled the door. Right. Instead, we were able to say, hey, here's our plan. And we were able to get a convert done in the public markets at a 32% premium to the stock price. And we would never have been able to do that in the private markets. Just absolutely not. And, and, it, and it allowed us to finance the company in a way that actually was more patient than private capital. And so to me, when I talk to people about being public, I said, listen, for us, tapping the public markets has been an amazing way for us to finance the growth, finance these acquisitions, which would have been really hard. If I told you, Howard, hey, I just took over this company. and the full-time CEO in April. And then in, you know, I don't know, August or somewhere, I'm like, hey, I'm going to buy a company. You'd be like, slow down, buddy. You know, I'm your VC. I don't want to put any more money in the company. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in, in the public markets, you have the ability to kind of like just act in many ways with more, more aggressive with the capital as long as you're transparent and honest about it. And for us, it was great. And then the, re- the recruiting part is great, too, because you can give options that are liquid and, and all the stuff that, you know, what happens when you're in, in many of these companies that you're an employee, you, you, you need to find SecFi or you never get liquid.
0: Yeah, I think what I'm seeing is there's all these signs, you know, Vanguard's going to win. Like, I mean, you and I have been investing in Pintech forever. So, and, and I want to go back to Gold Bullion. And, and and man, we'll have to do another one because uh, I hate talking about public stocks, especially with people that run them. So, you know, I know you're not being promotional, but I'm kind of excited. Is the, the idea that in hindsight, now I look back and SoftBank was kind of the top and we worked. And it wasn't like a bell rang and every, the market crashed. It was, it's not about a market crash. It's about a transition. It was all going to be Vanguard, 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 passive, passive, passive. It just looked like game over. And then, you know, little, little things. Etoro 10 years ago, Robinhood, Twitter, Discord, Telegram, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, because you had Wealthfront and Betterment, and it's like, oh my God, that's the best we can do in technology. is just clone Vanguard. Uh, and that was kind and then you have SoftBank that comes in and is like blind 300 million, 400 million, but companies that don't need it or maybe did need it, but had no due diligence. And I think that was like, wait a minute, we can do this too in the public markets, which led to SPACs, which is now going to lead to a lot of bad SPACs, but it's going to lead to a lot of people saying, wait a minute. Why pay that premium in the private markets when there's a lot of company? if we talk to the CEOs, like you're willing to come on my podcast, $700 million company. Now, granted, I know there should be a thousand other hedge funds doing what I'm doing. This is the new 10Q. I don't need to know what your numbers are. I just need to get inside the head of these CEOs and see how they're thinking and see how they're thinking about the cloud and software. There's probably a ton of these companies out there under a billion dollars that can be retooled as public companies.
1: Yeah, and I actually think it's it's better for the companies. I think it's, it's definitely better for the employees. The ability to access what you've worked on, and then you know, I think it helps the customers because they sort of can say, "Oh, you're public. You know, you're going to be around. You got money in your balance sheet. I don't have to worry about you know X, Y, and Z happening." You know, so I think it's I think for some companies it can work really, really well. You know, where, where it doesn't work, and I think this is where some of the SPACs are going to be challenged. If it's like experimental, right? If it's binary outcomes. Um, you know, that's where I think it's, you've got to be careful what you say. You don't want to mislead. You end up, you know, sharing a lot less information with your investors as if when you're private and you were doing the same thing, you, you share a lot more. Um, so, you know, there, there are many instances where I think it makes a lot of sense and, and a few that I think it doesn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it makes sense for companies that don't have revenue or years away from revenue. I'm like, run from those right? Like if you want to do that, go do yep. speculating in biotech. Like God, there's enough good tech companies where you can see recurring revenues. And in, 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 I just don't know why you would speculate in, in pre-revenue companies as public when you have all these great choices of companies and institutional ownership. So, yeah, so, but you can't protect people from themselves. You know, the guardrails are off with the Robin Hoods and the Toros. So the, the next, is there anything you don't have time for much? Cause you got the kids, you got the COVID. Are you excited to get back to the office, like I know there's all this talk about work from home and we did it and whatever, but I mean, where where do you see yourself, you know, post COVID?
1: Yeah, I can't wait to get back to the office because I, I, I learn a little bit like you through listening and talking and engaging and it's, uh, it's, it's, I find it so hard in Zoom, but I'll tell you a funny story. I was, uh, you know, I think complaining to my dad about this idea of, you know, like I got to spend all day in Zoom and I can't engage and I'm going crazy in my own head. And you know, I remember like, I felt so guilty saying it because he, he looks at me, and he's like, you realize that you're like you know your grandfather came from like a dirt house in India, yeah. and you're complaining that you get to work in an air conditioned room and you know you've got food. Um, you know how dare you complain? And I've kind of taken that uh, you know even to our team. And I say, listen, if our if our employees if our, if our team members are suffering, they're paying, they need help. We show lots of love. But if you're an executive and you get paid these these crazy high salaries, then you got to suck it up because there's someone else waiting, and we have to be respectful of what we've given. And So to me, I look, I've I've gone the path of like. This is this is this is like reality, and we just got to fight through it and make the best of it. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to be the happiest guy in the world. But for me, I've like kind of like the resoluteness of like I'm not going to complain. I got to execute because I get paid way too much money for doing something that I enjoy.
0: And how does Par get paid? Is it a contract or is it off the credit card spend? It's SaaS.
1: Or? It's SaaS. Now we've moved into payments. So we're trying to process payments and and do stuff there. But historically, it's it's SaaS. It's a traditional SaaS business with you know very high retention, low churn. Um, and then we've got you know a lot of revenue comes from our historical business you know, selling hardware and services to very large restaurants like McDonald's and KFC and restaurants like that. But you're seeing this, this movement of, you know, I call it sort of the lower quality hardware and services revenue to the higher quality SaaS revenue. And that'll take, you know, a couple more years, but over time that will become the majority and and really drive us forward.
0: So you think you can get to a post-hardware world at, at par, or you have to have the hardware that goes with it, or is there a new operating system in the cloud?
1: I think hardware will, will exist for a long time and, and maybe forever. I mean, you still need a device to operate. You still need engagement, but the form of it may change. Like like I said, I think the trend that I'm most interested, you know, across technology, this idea of you know com- computers and, and technology becoming ambient, right? Like, yeah. you know, when I walk into the Amazon Go store, like, I don't know where the, where, where, where the stuff is, right? I don't know where my, my credit card is being charged. I don't know where they're like, how they're making sure that they know what I bought, but I know it's there. And I think it may not be that device sitting on a cash register, but it might be something else that's doing the same exact processing, just not as visible to me, but some hardware device somewhere.
0: And so you're an LP with us. Are you doing that type of investing anymore, or are you just too busy?
1: Yeah, I think I, I still look for it's a lot of the same stuff, but and, and, and see where I think things are interesting. Obviously, um, you know my you know friendship and association with Holly and co venture has been is obviously inspirational, and um and, and you know my, my way of like investing and looking at things is just I like to find like really big themes. And sort of get behind them, right? And so, you know, years ago, we were into that whole Airbnb thing, you remember, right? Where I was saying, you know, we, so we went out and bought a bunch of condos in Barcelona and put them on Airbnb, and, you know, got licenses to do that. And, and that was an amazing experience. And so, you know, today, I'm obsessed with the stuff we talked about, which is, you know, the, these these, these long tail SaaS opportunities, I think the world is just still underappreciating how enormous that space is. And, uh, and I think that's gonna continue. and so I, I look for the same type of stuff. I look for stuff that are kind of gliding on those those big trends. And um, so you know today, if I saw you know some software product that's selling drafting out of Amazon or e-commerce, I'd be really interested. If I saw a product that's doing something in payments that I thought was too upside, you know I would be interested. Obviously, to me, these these are th- I'm not out there like looking for this stuff, and so a little of it just depends on what kind of falls on my desk. but I'm still in- inspired by that stuff, but it's not you know, I would say it's 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 below the level of hobby even.
0: And is gold? Because you started gold bullion. Just quickly background on gold bullion. What it was the fractional that got you excited, or the commodity part? What what got you excited about that? And and to explain the company.
1: Yeah, actually, it was actually neither. I think so. So GBI was this interesting um, idea with with my partners, where we created a marketplace to buy, trade, and store physical assets, which really narrowed down into precious metals. And the idea was you could be able to type in a ticker and buy a coin or bar of gold or silver as easy as you'd buy a stock or a bond. And, you know, what What I think got it going was, you know, one of our partners had this macro thesis that um, this is actually after, you know, well after the last financial crisis, which was that the world's going to print money for a very, very, very long period of time, and that's not going to stop. And the, the move to hard assets is going to accelerate. And so that's kind of how we fell into it. I was really into the idea of the technology, which is how can you buy something that, you know, not electronic, make it electronic, um, and then the whole, you know, building of a business. And so it was an amazing journey and experience to sort of start something that was a little idea, you know. Become an enterprise in many ways, an enterprise software business. We're selling to large, such financial institutions, and then you know, in many ways get lucky because it brought us into crypto. Because as you know, um, most of the gold bugs are happen to now also be uh, crypto bugs, and so and I think it was also that like sort of first wave of fintech where you know you were really into it, and there were a few others, but you know we got to see like that first wave of lending and insurance. And just the beginning of payments, and and so you know back then I used to joke you could have like rifle shot it you could have like you know literally shot in a barrel and, and you would you would have had winners in fintech because there there was there were a lot of them yep. and 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 it was very much the category bet right um you know I always joke like back then if, if there was like an idea for I'm making it up online student loans you had to pick between like two or three companies right now you got to pick between two hundred um and so you know our timing was really great because we were the world was just getting to this world of like tech and institutions were just getting to the point where they're willing to actually like trust a small company to do a large process. Um, And so we kind of get to plan all those trends at the same time.
0: Awesome. So we flash forward to this money printing cycle that never stopped. And yet, people still own a lot of stock. Oh, they don't own old world stocks. Everybody's kind of selling that down and still chasing the cloud. How do you see from a macro perspective the world? Because you have gold bullion, and you have Ali, you have co you have Ali running co venture, and you have sure. investments with us and you're running a company, and then you got Bitcoin. Like, and and the same headaches that started in 2008 continue.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm no expert, but I try to make things like very simple for myself, which is, I think the in a world like this, the world's going to overpay for growth for a long time because with interest rates being zero for, for I expect a long time, uh, you're going to overpay for growth and you're going to gravitate towards harder or hard-ish assets and so I think that you know people always tell me saAS is, is overvalued and and, and 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 I I I don't always think I agree with that I think hey that it's if you can prove durability and growth i.e high retention and 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 AR growth the market will continue to reward you in a, for a long period of time that's my own perspective I think growth really really wins in this cycle and then I think that the in a world where your every dollar that you own is being debased at an aggressive rate you gravitate towards things like gold. I think Bitcoin has sort of become that digital gold. Um, you know, one of my partners the saying, you know, they're cousins. And I do think you're going to see this, this sort of like barbell approach become very common. I think all the stuff in the middle, like you mentioned, it's just high risk. You're at the risk of inflation coming and then you're screwed. You're at the risk of, you know, technology disruption. Um, you know, look at, look at the restaurant chains that didn't invest, that used to be great restaurant chains and then didn't invest in healthy food and technology. And that's why the world would really, really overpay for great growth and then super underpay for anything average.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's sadly, it's not even sadly. It's just that fucking simple. Even though everybody's inundated with cat or the rich people are inundated with cash, they're still very picky.
1: And and it's like your point too, like the the lack of public companies available is just compounding that.
0: Well, that's changing. The cat's out of the bag. Supply is coming. That would be the name of my book if it could be released today. Uh, Wall Street and a new Wall Street, meaning the Silicon Valley people that are moving east or moving to the middle of the country are going to say, fuck it, I'm outsource banking. SPAC is basically outsourced banking. So anybody with vision and a network, even guys like me can put together a public company or or a, a mini soft bank with one bullet. That's what I call them. That's what SPACs are, mini soft banks, one bullet.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting to me. Is, so, so I don't know if you know, sorry, uh We actually launched a SPAC a year ago. Oh, so before this okay. craziness uh-huh. and um, focused on software. And, and I think what's fascinating just in that, you know, my little experience in it, it was interesting to see that, you know, back then what was considered a SPAC deal has, to today has changed dramatically. You know, now when investors look at SPAC deals, they want door. you know, they want the super high growth, high quality Silicon Valley name. Whereas before, you know, SPACs were like, you know, the carve out, right? Or yeah. this sort of, you know, this asset where you're putting a huge, amazing, famous allocator, you know, uh, on top of it um, or something a little messy, you know, that, or something that, you know, couldn't raise money in traditional IPO. And now it's turned into like the IP alternative. Right. And, and I think that's interesting. It, it will be like every other quote unquote financial innovation. And it's not an innovation. This is sort of like a rediscovery where there will be excesses, right? You have oh. SPACs that are mm-hmm. going to merge into companies with zero revenue. You have SPACs that are being sold to like, your. you know, I, I'm guaranteeing you that some LP is going to say, Hey, you guys launched, you VC fund launch a SPAC. And I noticed that like we, you merged one of our companies that we own a small piece of into. So you're on both sides of the trade. There's going to be lawsuits. Like it's going to be a mess. Right. Um, but I do think, like you said, the cat's out of the bag and it is is efficient way. And I'm just fascinated just literally in a year how fast it went from, you know, being this esoteric thing to something that's now applicable to anybody.
0: It's not so fast. SPAC's like we joke, we're around forever and it was a tool for the fringe. It was kind of like Bitcoin. It was kind of like, uh, talk to me about SPAC again. We're going to go drill a mine in Belize uh, or Colorado. And then it was like cleaned up, cleaned up. It's just the timing. Listen, the tool has been around. I'll give you another perspective, which is
1: like, you know, you and I have talked about Silicon Valley versus New York or San Diego. And, and you know, I've never been able to sort of like gel into Silicon Valley in the sense that you, you, go, to a, you go to a restaurant, you go to a bar, you go to play, Everyone is the same. They say the same thing. Mm-hmm. They all hear, you know, Elon Musk say first principles. And then first principles becomes a word out of every venture capitalist for the next two years. Um, you know, crypto, Peter Thiel says crypto, everyone's into crypto. And it showed to me the SPACs was the same thing. You had a couple, you know, I call these guys that can see the future, you know, like Shima says, SPACs, where to go. And then everyone jumps in yeah. and it's, and you close your eyes and you go. And it's like that group think it's that on steroids and it's on steroids in a world where you have, you can put up so little money, make such returns and it's, uh, you know, that makes it even worse. Right. So I, to me, it was, I agree with everything you said, but I also think there's just like a, this group think that everyone jumps on the train and, and, I look forward to when those things get shaken out and like those that actually understand what oh, they're
0: doing. When. we are already in the shakeup. We are upon a summer trading quickly below 10 or nine. You know what I mean? Like we are there. Yep. And people don't realize these can go to two pretty quickly. So the same rules apply. What I think the most interesting take on, well, there's so many interesting takes on SPACs and um, be, and that's cool that you did one a year ago, Um, is that Mickey at Ribbit said, I can't get him on, he doesn't do public stuff, but he doesn't talk in the public. But he was like, dude, it's just no different than .com. There'll be pets.coms and there'll be an Amazon out there. It's like, it's a bubble, but it's not a bubble for the right people. So it's buyer beware, but we needed this, right? Otherwise, everything looks the same. Everybody owns the same 500 stocks, which is just yep. stupid, you know? That, you yeah, know, driving everybody off the cliff in the same 500 stocks was dumb when all the returns are coming from 10 or D- 20. The other
1: thing I think you're going to see is that, you know, this has been said for a long time, but now I believe it's going to happen, which is you're going to have more sizable software tech companies outside the United States that actually become investable for U.S. investors. And, and, and you know, today, like the market cap of like software and SaaS stocks is like whatever, 80-20 U.S. rest of the world or 90-10 even. I think you'll start to see some of these companies get to scale abroad and also expand the universe.
0: Well, there's Adyen. There's Tencent. I mean, there's not a lot. Uh, Even Infi is breaking out in India, you know, emphasis. So you're right there. There will be. And and I call it too big to cheat, like even Tencent. Like we we think of China and go, oh, they're cheating. And, you know, some of these companies now are so big. Why cheat? Like it's just they're printing so much money and there's no need to cheat. And I think we finally hit that type of scale. I call it too big to cheat. So I agree with you there. All right. I've taken enough of your time. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy for uh, part of technologies. Uh, that's pretty cool.
1: Howard, as I always say, none of it would happen without you. There's some connection you made somewhere that I'm sure made this happen in the background.
0: And I talk to Ali all the time, so I'm, I'm, uh, we're always chatting about you. So uh, have, a, have a safe rest of the year, and uh, we'll get you back on the uh, podcast soon. Awesome. Thanks, Howard. See you. Canute. Very, very impressive. Oh, man. So mean. Crazy impressive. And it was like, he's been down this fintech rabbit hole, running around New York with me for years and brainstorming. And he knows so many people. And he introduced me to Raul at Real Vision, Uh which I invested in personally. So he's kind of been all over the, the map with crypto and dabbling. But big brain, I don't know. He ended up at par and I'm just, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lesson I'm betting on people. Even at the public market where you're seeing everybody loves Tremont. When you meet neat and now you go look at his stock and, and you see it going straight up, you're like, yep. you're betting on the person. Yeah, that's all right. And now uh, yeah, not all people can run a public company, so I wouldn't have known that. And so now that I've seen him do it for a year, I'm like, you know, I bought some of the stock and just keep an eye on what he's doing and uh, just learned a lot. You learned a lot. Oh, yeah, I do. All right, everybody panic with friends. Twice a week, hit us up on Spotify or Google. You can subscribe, and then you don't have to worry about it. You'll just get an alert. Uh, we talk to great entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders, technologists, traders. And we're trying to panic when no one's panicking and not panic when everybody's panicking. Those are a couple times a year that happens, and we're just trying to catch some of those big moves. Canute uh, producer, Thanks, Canute, for doing it. Thanks, StockTwits, for distributing it. And uh, please hit the subscribe button and tell your friends.